another great reminder of why we need to come and join together. It's to be reminded. We get so caught up in our daily lives and our world that um, all we can see are the trials and the pain and the difficulty. And we forget about the great things that he has done, not only in the history of mankind that we see through scripture, the great things that he has done in us in transforming our life. And so what a what a beautiful reminder as you're turning to Hebrews chapter 7 and while I was reading in the Old Testament about the, the sacrificial system and the priesthood and just this this great picture of of a need to repetitiously make atonement and sacrifice for sin it's a graphic illustration that you see because physically you you have to do something, take your, 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 your fruit, take your, your animal, take it somewhere, make an offering, see a, a, a priesthood that would be in, in, in their full array of clothing and turbans and, and make that sacrifice for your sin because very clearly you know you need to. And so... What happens for us now as new believers, as New Testament saints, understand that Jesus came and he died once. He was that lamb offering sacrifice and he was the substitute uh, for, for our sin. And in his death on the cross 2,000 years ago, our sins are paid for. The, the, the payment for our sin, the redemption um, has been recompensed and so he dies once and for all and so we don't have the need to go in weekly to make atonement or sacrifice for sin but we need to be reminded because we still struggle with sin we still struggle with doing the right thing with being obedient and so even as we come further away from the sacrificial system, we see that we line up very similarly to our, uh, to our early brothers who uh, had a great need, a great need uh, for atonement. And so how do we understand that? And how do we live? And how do we uh, bring that together? Well, Hebrews 7 gives us uh, just some, some insights into that. Last week, we, we talked about the anchor of the soul, the anchor of the soul and, and finding that through God's unchangeable promises. And one of the reasons why Jesus is the anchor of our soul and, and the Bible is the anchor of our soul is because we can trust in, in the statements, we can trust in the history, we can trust in the science, we can trust in the prophecy uh, that we've seen throughout Scripture. And so we see the Abrahamic promises being fulfilled, being sustained, even more than being fulfilled, being sustained of a, an everlasting covenant of land, of seed, and of blessing. And even though Israel would have been at times in its history taken out of Israel, you'll see God putting them back in. 
time after time. Doesn't matter if it's the Babylonians or the, the Persians or if it's Rome or if it's England or Muslims, it doesn't matter who or what it is. If, if you see a removal of, of Israel, you will see God put them right back. Why? Part of that is because of Abrahamic covenant. You see a promise of, of hope for generations after generations, nation upon nation, that transcends past Israel to all the nations of the world. And that's where we come in. And we're part of the, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And so we can anchor our hope in God because we see these truths taking place over and over and over again. We see that it's through the anchor of our soul that we, we have refuge. That's what we flee to. We don't flee to escape the world. There's nowhere to escape. We don't find the things of the world that, that the world finds to, to flee to, whether it be mind-altering things of, of, of over-drinking or drugs or, or entertainment or just vacation, you know, just escapism. That's not what we, where we find our refuge. We find it in the anchor of our soul. And so this week, we kind of asked that question, well, how, right? That's, that should be the big question. Well, we go from Hebrews 6 to Hebrews 7, and we start to see uh, elements of the how. So today we're going to see uh, an overview of Hebrews 7 because there's a lot going on here that I, I feel like we need kind of an introduction to Hebrews 7 in order to understand uh, Hebrews 7 before we move any, any further. So today we're going to look at an overview of, of the priesthood in three ways, through the Mosaic Covenant, uh, through God's sanctuary, and then through God's ministers. Well, let's take a look at Hebrews 7, first couple of verses real quick. First one, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of the days nor the end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Well, right away, we should have all kinds of questions. Um, we just come off of Hebrews 6, where we're uh, directed to uh, be mature, to uh, grow in our faith, to have Jesus as the anchor of our soul. And then we we're kind of start talking about this Melchizedek, who's a very, very interesting character, right? It's like, well, wait a minute. If you really want me focusing on Jesus, don't mention Melchizedek, because that makes me want to know more about Melchizedek, right? And we need to know more about Melchizedek. And so... But we need to understand that Melchizedek is a forerunner, just a, a, a typology to Christ. And so how so? Well, let's answer that. So uh, 
what we're going to do is look at some of the background for Hebrews 7. And, and there's kind of seven key questions. Who's Melchizedek? Uh, we have some questions about his genealogy, right? What is the order of Melchizedek? That's a statement that we see in, um, in a couple times in Hebrews. We want to understand the history of kind of this mysterious priesthood. What are theophanies? And finally, are Jesus and Melchizedek the same? Are they the same person? So first of all, who's Melchizedek? Well, we see right away in Hebrews 7, uh, in his name, uh, we are given some insights. So his name, Hebrew names do this. Hebrew names are, are chopped up Hebrew words or phrases, right, that then are just kind of like Legos attached together. And so we get the privilege of reading a very long Hebrew name that we can't pronounce. Um, but actually they have meaning. And so his name literally means king of righteousness. And not only that, but w within his name is this, this idea that he's the king of Salem. And so... He's the king of righteousness and the king of Salem. Now, don't ask me how these Hebrew characters have these names that were, you know, you're usually given a name at birth and then later on in their life, this is what they are. Like Sarah means she laughs, right? You know, like, huh, how does that work? Or, you know, Jacob is a chiseler, you know, he's a chiseler. Um, so it's kind of interesting, you know, but that's why then sometimes we take a whole study to kind of see the whole etymology of their name and it all makes perfect sense. So when we look at Melchizedek, uh, we see this character and he's like, has this, this sudden appearance. Well, he suddenly appears in the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament is, is a long period of time of history, right? And you'll see this all the time where it kind of, it'll, it'll focus in like very specifically and then it'll, you know, and so you've got like in one chapter, a very deep depth. And then all of a sudden the next chapter, it's like 200 years later. And so the Old Testament will kind of go back and forth like this. Well, Melchizedek just kind of seems to come out of nowhere. Um, and that's in Genesis 14. So we'll, we'll kind of go through a little history of Genesis in a little bit. Things happen very quickly throughout Genesis, right? So we're talking about Abraham, and all of a sudden, Melchizedek comes out of nowhere. Well, he comes, and he bestows this, this blessing on Abraham after Abraham, that they just have this great military victory, uh, defeating these three uh, foreign kings. And Melchizedek comes, and he bestows a blessing on Abraham in the name of El Elyon, which means God Most High. Now, in the Old Testament, again, there's certain phrases that become very key, like, who do you worship? I worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm on that team, right? I'm on the team of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Immediately, the people in the area would know which God you're referring to. Because remember, there, there's polytheism going crazy. 
There's all kinds of gods. Every, every town, every village, every community has like their own God and their own name. Okay, but there's only one God with this name, God Most High, which, think about it, there's all kinds of gods. Who's your God? Well, my God's Most High God. That's also referred to, and we will see, as, as Yahweh, right? So that would be another indicator of, oh, so even though I've never met you before, even though I don't know where you came from, when you walk in, you say, I follow the God of the Most High, it's like, Oh, it's like a denomination, right? And so he comes in and, and then he starts blessing Abraham. And Abraham accepts him. And he accepts this. And, the, and there's a, a, a tithe. There's, a, there's an offering that's given, which shows that Abraham is, is recognizing him and, and honoring him at the same time. So it's a very, very uh, important authentication that this person is somebody of substance. I mean, you don't just give a tenth of, of you know, your income to anybody who walks on the door, right? So we see this, this kind of this next element of Melchizedek, which is this idea that his, his genealogy, there's, there's no record. He um, has no genealogy. He's without mother. He's without um, you know, father, no beginning, no, no end. And so the two arguments are, well, one, that he's um, just came out of nowhere, or that this is referring specifically to the tracing of his genealogy. Well, why is that important? Well, because the Levitical priesthood has to come from the family of the Levites in, in the Israel community, right? So remember you have... 12 sons of Jacob, 12 sons of Israel. They have different roles within their tribes. So out of the tribe of Judah is supposed to come the scepter, which is, that's where the kings come out of. So out of the 12 different tribes of Israel, the kings are going to come out of Judah. While the Levites are going to be the priests. And so now what the the situation here is, well, here comes this guy. He has no genealogical record that shows that he should be a priest. Okay. He, he doesn't have his papers, right? There's no comfort. There's no qualifications. There's no bloodlines that would say, Hey, you belong in the priesthood. There's going to be somebody else who comes along like that too. And that's going to be Jesus. And so that's where we start to kind of see this type of, of, of priest, and we'll get to that in a second. I, I don't think what you see here is, is Jesus. I think what you're seeing is a, is a Christ type. And what's a Christ type? Well, in the Old Testament, we see a, a lot of Christ types. Adam is a, is a firstborn, right? He's a Christ type. Uh, we, we see that in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see things like... Uh, Abraham being the father of nations, and, and Jesus is the father of, of all nations, right? And so Abraham then is a, is, is a Christ type. We saw things like the brazen serpent being raised on the staff, and by looking up at the serpent with your faith, then you would be healed. And we see Jesus, and so that's a, a Christ type. We see the burnt offerings, obviously the lamb um, are, are, are Christ types. 
David and the kingship is David's a Christ type. And so there are a lot of Christ types that we see in the Old Testament, but that doesn't make them Jesus. Okay? And so, like Melchizedek, uh, Jesus wasn't technically qualified through genealogy. Why? Well, because his genealogy led to the king, to the throne. He's from the tribe of Judah. Well, we see this concept of uh, the order of Melchizedek, a, a phrase that um, comes up as well. Well, the order of Melchizedek, we don't use this phrase a lot nowadays, and you know, maybe unless you're watching a movie and kind of you see this, this concept of uh, uh, like the Knights Templar, right? What's the Knights Templar? Well, they're a, a Catholic military order that was designated uh, during the, um, the Crusades. Uh, so this is an order, a small, selected, skillful group of people, kind of like the Navy SEALs. Okay, they're, they're an order, they're a team, they're a group, they're very select, um, very small. And so there's going to be, there's this order of Melchizedek. It's not for everybody. In fact, we find out its membership is two. It's Jesus and Melchizedek. Okay? And so this, this order then is, is going to have some similarities. Um, and so we're going to now see how Melchizedek, as he comes out of nowhere and he doesn't have a genealogy, uh, he also has dual roles, right? He's a king and a priest. We're going to see Jesus as a king and a priest as well, and a lamb, and God, and a lot of other things. So it's the first time we see kind of a different order where this priest uh, has different functions, different roles. No other priest was um, uh, had that kind of calling. Well, I mentioned that if we take kind of a, a little jet tour in, in Genesis, we kind of maybe get our arms wrapped around the priesthood a little bit. And so remember, in Genesis 6, we have the flood, right? So you have Adam and Eve are born, and the world gets populated, but then the flood comes, and now we start all over again. So every, everything that you see around us now, all of us, we're all related directly to Noah and his family, more so than um, you know, the relatives of, of Adam. We're all related to Adam, um, but very specifically, we, we can trace all the way to the eight people who came off the ark. Well, what happens when they come off the ark? What's the first thing that happens when they come off the ark? Well, in Genesis 9.20, they build an altar. They, the earth is restored and, and Noah builds an altar. Why an altar? The altar then is the, is the mark of this God of Most High, right? The altar sacrifice for your sins. And this is very important because the first and only people coming out of the flood established, okay, here's the altar. So Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, their wives, they all know this is how you worship God, right? This is the pattern of worship right here, the blood atoning sacrifice substitute for sin on the altar. Well, we see Genesis 10, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, they kind of populate Mesopotamia, they ultimately populate the entire earth. 
And they go in their different directions, up to Europe, off to China, down to Africa. Well, the next thing we read about is the Tower of Babel in in Genesis 11. And you've got tons of people, right? Remember I mentioned that the Bible kind of contracts, slows down, speeds up. You've got tons of people. They're all speaking the same language, and then God confuses their tongues. And so you've got people spread out all over the earth. Then Genesis 12, here's Abraham's calling. Abraham's calling, it's about 400 years after Noah, a lot of people have been born. And we see the genealogies just before this. A lot of people have been born. And so, where are we at with religion and how we worship? By this time, Abraham had been in Ur, had been worshiping multiple gods. He was a a polytheist, right? God speaks to him, tells him, get up and go. And he goes. And so now here's is a reboot of following God through Abraham. That's why he's father Abraham. So God speaks to Abraham and Abraham leaves Ur and he's going down to this, this area of the promised land and he's settling in there. And it's at that point when he, then he runs into Mel, Melchizedek. So you can see and understand how this is a surprise encounter for us we oh yeah that's just we've read that from the time we read the bible abraham melchizedek runs into him and that's just the way the way it is but you have to understand the context of this that you know these people aren't you know there, there's no like you know youtube videos or i mean him coming into contact with somebody else who worships Yahweh it is a special thing. It's a special thing. And so out of nowhere comes this Melchizedek. And so that's more of the picture that I think that is being painted other than something like some kind of Melchizedek was begotten and came out of nowhere. Even Jesus didn't come to the earth that way. Remember, he came uh, through Mary. So... Very interesting, which leads us to the next question, which is, well, what about theophanies? And what are theophanies? So the question here is, okay, we're still trying to understand who's, is this Melchizedek was just a man who came out of nowhere and then kind of intersected with with Abraham as a Christ type? Or was this a theophany? A theophany then is... It's a visible manifestation of of God in humanity. So when we look at the, not looking at all of them, but when we just look at a few of these instances in in the Old Testament, what's a theophany? Well, in Exodus 3, we see Moses, and he's up in the mountain. He sees a burning bush, and, and he sees something in that bush. And that something leads him to be afraid and it leads him to bow down and worship. And, and the idea there is that God is revealing himself in some, some form, some theo, meaning God, um, in, in this presence. And that's at that point where God, who are you, what are you, says, I am that I am, right? 
That's one of the theophanies. We see a theophany in Exodus 13, beginning with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And, and this is God leading the way for the people of Israel when they're wandering in the desert for 40 years. Okay, It's, a, it's an appearance of, of God. Uh, we understand the, the God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve as some kind of theophany a, a event that's taking place. Another great example is in Genesis 18 when uh, you know, Abraham sees these visitors come and, and it's right before Sodom and Gomorrah and these visitors come and they and tell him where there's going to be judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and later we find out that it was some kind of an angel talking to him and then some people think or maybe some kind of theophany which is again God making himself present on earth to mankind. And so we see these kind of these interactions of of you know the angel of the Lord, you know, and, and who's the angel of the Lord exactly? Is that a, a a different type of angel or is this a theophany of, of Christ coming on earth? So we have tons of questions just regarding theophanies in and of themselves, but even specifically as it relates to to Melchizedek. And so those are the kind of the two different arguments that Melchizedek is either one, a literal king, or two, a theophany of Jesus. I believe he's actually a literal king. And the reference to having no beginning and no end has to do with his tracing of genealogy, and that's important because that wouldn't make him qualified to be a priest. But the other thing we need to get our arms around is there is no priesthood at the time we meet Melchizedek. So you've got that one going for you too. So <clears throat> what we see then is this great foreshadow of a, of a priest who's, who's going to be better. And isn't that the theme then of Hebrews, that Jesus is the better priest? And next week we'll, we'll take a closer look at it. Well, when we look at Hebrews 7, yes, we need to understand Melchizedek, but maybe more importantly, and we don't want to lose sight of, we need to understand the priesthood, the priesthood itself. So there's three uh, ways we want to see the priesthood. We want to see it through the Mosaic Covenant. We want to see it through God's sanctuary and then through God's ministry. So uh, again, kind of if, if you... We're going to race through a little bit here in the Old Testament, kind of stop in some little places. But the first thing is, uh, what is the priesthood? Well, we have to get our, our arms wrapped around what's happening in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 20, we see then this, this Ten Commandments, Right? We saw in Leviticus 19, we see a covenant with, with Moses and God, the Mosaic covenant or the old covenant, right? So Exodus 19, verse 5. Now then, if, if, it's a bilateral covenant, meaning if you obey, then I will bless you. If you don't obey me, then I will curse you. Leviticus 26 kind of details those, those lists. But the Mosaic Covenant is a bilateral covenant between God and man. Now then, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then 
You shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And so what you see here is the nation of Israel is coming into covenant relationship with God. Okay, there's a a covenant relationship. Next step. Think of this like as as a forming government, a forming nation, which is exactly what it is. Well, what are the rules? What are the laws? That's when we get to Exodus 20. We see the beginning of the Ten Commandments, right? And God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or what, or in the water or under the, or under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So we see here now, okay, we have a covenant with God. We have commandments that you need to keep. Uh, Verse 18, and all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let us, let not God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you in order that the fear of him may remain with you. Why? so that you may not sin. So we see that God has a relationship with his people. He has laws with his people. It is his desire that the people do not sin. But the people are afraid of God. They're afraid of God because he is the Lord God Almighty. But they're also afraid because of sin. Sin creates a fear. It creates a problem. It creates separation it creates shame we see furthermore in exodus 21 we start to see kind of some ordinances and principles of what happens with slaves what happens if you strike a man what happens if you kidnap somebody uh what what about miscarriages how do we uh redeem or 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 make atonement for this Uh, what is payment we start to see elements in 20 chapter 22 of of well here's how you have restoration and restitution, right? And so what we see here now is this, through this covenant, we see a system that's being established. There is a system of, there's laws, right? It's very important for us to understand that, especially today. Today now we like everybody to think that, well, Hey, Jesus came, he died, he saved everybody from their sins, and so, well, there are no rules or laws, we're just all saved. It's like, well, wait a minute, where, where was that ever a, a pattern of God's? There's always been law, always, always been obedience. And so these are kind of the, uh, the beginning of where you see the outlining of these laws. We see in 
Exodus 23, the beginning of, well, here are three feasts, like the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Harvest of the First Fruits, the Ingathering. Okay? Well, <clears throat> there needs to be this, this, this place in order to, to make these sacrifices or atonements, and that's where we see God's sanctuary or the temple. And so the beginning of the temple in, in Exodus 25, we start to see God's sanctuary, verse 8, and then let them construct a sanctuary for me. Why? Well, one of the reasons that I may dwell with them. Remember the placement of God's sanctuary. The placement of God's sanctuary was supposed to be in the heart of the camp of Israel. So this isn't like a remote God where, you know, like God's, God's sanctuary is on the top of Mount Rainier. I mean, we don't really don't want anybody to go up there. You just, he's there. It's awesome. It's incredible. It's magnificent, right? But we don't go there because that's God's place. No, God places his, his temple right there at four corners. Boom, right in the middle of everybody. And all the tribes of Israel are all set up and designed around the temple. So he is in the middle. Why? That he may dwell among his people. Well, what's in the sanctuary then? Well, the things in the, in the sanctuary is this is the place where the people are going to voluntarily come and they're, um, you know, they're even going to be involved in, in, in paying for this sanctuary. But they start bringing in things like uh, verse 3. And thus, this is the contribution which you are to raise from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram, skin dyes of red, uh, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil, and for their fragrances. Onyx stones, setting stones, and ephod for the breastplate. So what you see here now is in this establishing of God's sanctuary or God's house are items, you know, a veil, right? Items for clothing. We, we start to see furniture being brought in. Uh, we see the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, the, the lampstands, uh, the ten curtains. We see uh, altars being built. Why? Going back to the covenant. There's a covenant with God. It's a bilateral covenant. If you obey me, then I will bless you. God has rules, but people are breaking the rules. They're sinning. So there has to be a sanctuary, a place where God dwells, where then the people are going to bring the sacrifices to God's house to make atonement, restitution, payment for their sins. There's going to then be a, a person. There's going to be a, um, a priesthood of people who are then going to be the mediators between man and God to perform the services of God's house. So we see God's ministers, the priests. And in Exodus 28, we start to see some of the, the outlinings of, well, here are some of their clothes. They're going to have an ephah. They're going to have a... You know, these royal garments, they're going to have a roll, they're going to have this royal turban. Um, they're going to look differently. But more importantly than that is the consecration. Uh, Exodus 29. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, to minister as priests to me. So remember, we're trying to get our arms wrapped around 
Hebrews 7, the priesthood. Why is the priesthood important? And who are these guys? Well, this is who the priests were, and this is what they needed to do personally. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers spread with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour, and you shall put them in one basket and present them to the in the basket along with the bowl of the two rams. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons in the doorway of the tent of the meeting and wash them with water. And you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the tunic and the robe of the ephod and the ephod on the breastplate and gird him with skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. Then you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. And you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them and you shall gird them with sashes Aaron and his sons and the bind caps on them and they shall have the priesthood by a perpetual statue so you shall ordain Aaron and his sons so we see here now that the priest himself uh, has to be consecrated the priest himself they're going to have to bring in sacrifices why because these priests are men. They're servants of the Lord, but they're men. They're going to have to bring in their ram sacrifices. They're going to have to bring in uh, their cake offerings. They're going to have to um, make sacrifice for themselves. We call that consecration before they can do it for the others. Verse 33 Thus they shall eat those things by which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But a layman shall not eat them because they are holy. We see this concept of this idea that, that the priests are separate from, from other people. But why? It's not because they're sinless. They just got, the, when you read through these chapters, you, they go through this whole ordeal of purification. Why? Because they have sin. But in going through that whole you know, purification uh, setup, and they're doing this on a, continual basis, on a continual basis, this then is what makes atonement and then what is, makes them separate from other people. So then the idea is... That this priesthood is going to be made up of God's ministering people who are then going to be the mediators of this process to the people. But first, they do it themselves. And so, the priesthood then was, always was, and always will be just People, just sinful man performing a role, a service in a religious organization or religious office or religious duty. And that never was intended or meant to be the way one is forgiven or saved from their sins. It's just part of the process. And so, trying to wrap this all up, um, we see Melchizedek comes and he's 
part of this priesthood. But he's a different priest. Why? Because he really wasn't part of this system, right? He's different. He's separate. He doesn't have this genealogy. He's not Levitical. Okay, but he is part of the priesthood. And he was supposed to be this future hope and picture of a priest that would be different than everybody else. A priest who would not need to perform personal sacrifice for himself, for his own sin. A, a, a priest whose, whose sacrifice would be perpetual. And this is what we're going to learn more about when we study <clears throat> Hebrews 7. This, this priest it's going to be perpetual. Now, these are things that we're so familiar with that we don't necessarily really appreciate and then don't necessarily really understand. But the great hope, the great anchor, is that through Jesus Christ, this unique priest then doesn't mean that you have to rely on man any longer which should be a great thing for you so you don't have to rely on Billy Graham right you don't have to rely on Tony Jamie you don't have to rely on uh, some TV preacher that is not where your anchor is your anchor is not there you don't have to go to any priest to pray to God you don't get your forgiveness from any human person, any denomination. That is not the source of your faith. And it becomes very, very important then for, uh, for us to, to have that understanding because so many New Covenant, New Testament Christians still have tie-ins to this Old Testament mindset. We learn from this Old Testament. We, we see the history of where priests come from, where covenants come from, where law comes from, disobedient payment. But there's a really big matzo ball out, out here. We're not under the Old Covenant. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant. We're not under a covenant that says, if you do this, then I will do this. We're under the new covenant. And in the new covenant, God says, you know what? I'm going to do everything. We're not going to rely on your good deeds. We're not going to rely on your good works. We're not going to rely on a bunch of priests. We're not going to on, rely on the blood of bulls. We're not going to rely on a building or a temple. We're going to remove that whole system which was never intended to be the way of salvation. Anyway, those were just types. Those were just foreshadows. Those were just pictures of one to come who was better, who was greater. So when we get our arms fully wrapped around this, then it allows us to understand why Jesus had to do it this way. Because this was the... The, the way that the sacrificial system was set up to make payment for sin. And so 
just like the hymns when we're singing and magnifying and praising. We don't praise, sing praise hymns to Melchizedek. We don't do praise hymns to Abraham, right? And so this is intended then to help us to once again understand the pathway, the true pathway to salvation and the true understanding of the anchor of our soul. And like Hebrews 6 says, to not get caught up in the elementary things and all the little different arguments that we get in, right? Do you have to be baptized to be saved? You know, do you have to do this to be saved? Yeah, understand where the anchor of your faith is and it's found in Jesus Christ who is our high priest who is our lamb who is the son of God so everything all our hope everything our anchor is Christ let's pray